Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're tangling with robots and rapidly mutating viruses with a mini break for smooching in Excalibur number 79, Twisted Logic. Excalibur number 79 was originally published in July 1994, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell and Chris Cooper on writing, Ken Lashley on pencils, Harry Candelario and Randy Elliott on inks, Chris Mathis on colors, Dave Sharp on letters, and Susan Gaffney and Bob Harris on editing. The NCOM 511 computer. Center of the most calculating intelligence on Earth. Within it, there exists an unknown civilization where man has never been. A startling new world where time and distance defy the laws of logic. Welcome back to another installment of Scala Chat, still with 100% more cyber stuff than usual. I'm not necessarily programmed to love that, but I have been known to crush on a robot or two, so I'm sure I can come up with a thought or two about this one. But who am I? I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Anna Papard. My primary programming concerns talking about gender and sexy stuff in comics and pop culture for academic places and the occasional university classroom and in online spots like Shelf Dust and ComicsXF and at the Twitter account Sequential Scholars, where at the time of this episode be debuting, I believe we'll be discussing Indigenous comics. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, which is not very useful for this issue, so I will be complaining about Kitty instead. I am joined, as always, by Mav. Remind our listeners of your cyber specialties. Hi, hi my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and, and God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly, um, which is a concept, <laughs> <laughs> which is a joke that only makes sense if you are a fan WKRP. of WKRP. <laughs> <laughs> As we record this, it's the day before Thanksgiving in, in the United States, which is where, you know, one third of this podcast is from. <laughs> and that is the topical reference that I was willing to drop. But cyber specialties, I don't know. I'm, I'm a professor of digital narrative and interactive design, so I should have a lot of cyber There you go. <laughs> like, that's literally what I do. But I work with computers a lot. They don't work like the ones in this book. It's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, you know, the, just the, the weird, let's say, post-humanism of this book is just odd and I have thoughts and you know we'll see how it goes um but that's that's where I'm at today <laughs> uh, 
I am looking forward to talking about this weird cyber stuff. I mean, why the insistence on computers having human bodies? I mean, I'll never understand, but uh, we will okay. talk about it. I I mean, because, and I'm sure we're going to talk. In fact, I know what Andrew wants to bring up because you, you from our chat. Anna once wrote an article entirely about the Vision's penis. And yep. um, the Vision does not occur in this particular book but zero does and zero clearly has a penis in fact more obviously zero has a penis than other characters like britannic who should have a penis or <laughs> nightcrawler in the previous couple of issues like the, some people have a smooth kin-like area there but not zero not the computer man and that i, I am keenly aware of that so, I'm <laughs> so looking forward weird to so weird great great well <laughs> i don't know that we could possibly have a more effective teaser for the episode than that but let's get through our intros first andrew uh Please reboot your systems. Uh, hello, I'm Dr. J. Andrew Demand. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University uh, and co-project lead for Sequential Scholars. I don't know. I'll just continue the thread from previous things. I've now I've now reached the point in academic term where I'm having anxiety dreams about teaching. Last night. <laughs> I was yeah. having to hand back my students' final exams, but none of their names were like anything other than gibberish symbols. So I couldn't call out their names and I couldn't actually get them their exams back. So I got really frustrated and my supervisor was staring at me and being like, hey, you're screwing over the students. And then I, I got mad at him and threatened him with violence. So I'm still <gasps> fine. Wow. Threatened him with violence. It was a dream. It was a dream. He can't be held accountable for that. No, it was a weird fictional version of my supervisor. It wasn't okay, there you go. But if a man go. is considered guilty for what goes on in his mind, give me the electric chair for all my future crimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a prince but, quote. <laughs> well done. And I mean, you've been reading a lot of very violent 90s comics lately, Andrew. So I wonder if those are having an effect on you. It's true. Doug Locke is breaking me. <laughs> all right so we are joined this week by another returning guest who's eager to talk cyberpunk and will probably complain about kitty with me the pod is delighted to welcome back matt linton welcome matt hey how's it going we're all hanging in there and i hope you are too i'll remind our listeners of what you get up to and then we'll catch up with you a little bit matt linton is a phd student at wayne state university studying multiracial identities and hybrid forms of visual media his eventual dissertation will look at the last dragon sorry to bother you spider-man into the spider-verse and ms marvel in a way that makes complete sense in his head and i'm sure it'll be I awesome along with teaching courses on comics video games african-american literature and film he's currently fulfilling a lifelong dream by working weekends at a comic book store <laughs> so matt you can tell us about that if you would like because i am curious and i also wanted to catch up with you about where we've been since you last joined us you are under no obligation to have read all of the excalibur issues between your last appearance and this one but if you have thoughts of where where we done, where we've ended up in the post Davis era. The floor is yours. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'll talk a little bit about the comic book store first because that is like like that's absolutely that no joke. A lifelong dream. I've wanted to work in a comic book store since I was like eleven, and just happened. <laughs> Tell us about yeah, it. Yeah. Um. So the store I'm working at is called Green Brain Comics. It's in Dearborn, Michigan, and I've gone there periodically. They've helped us out with like a lot of stuff on campus, and you know it's a really great store. And they just happened to at the start of the semester when I was trying to figure out like all the ways 
place to make sure I could pay rent and buy food and stuff. They happened to be hiring for a weekend person. And I was like, I am massively overqualified for this. I will literally, literally <laughs> take a pay cut to do this instead of make sandwiches at Jimmy John's. So that's what I did. So yeah, so I'm doing that on weekends. It's really great. It's hard to work in a comic book store and not shop all the time or it feel like I need things to read when I have a stack about two and a half feet high of graphic novels next to my bed that I haven't read already. So that's the challenge. But um, as far as Excalibur goes, I've read a lot of the stuff since the Davis run um, recently. I say probably semi unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> this is a this is a rough period. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I forgot how rough it was. But <laughs> like, I mean, my first thought literally with this issue, it was I have just been smacked in the face with like strife and like life LDN art that I was not prepared for. <laughs> I was like, Oh, yeah, this is this is what comics were for a minute. Okay. So yeah, I mean, like largely, I think my biggest issue with Excalibur post Davis is it becomes I mean, as much as there was a shift from like when Davis took over after Claremont, like there was some some shifting. It's so much more now where I think they just did not know what Excalibur was supposed to be. And so it becomes like completely like overly serious. It's like bogged down in every 90s X-Men plot going on at the time. I mean, this issue alone is like the legacy virus and phalanx and following up the fall of the mutants and stuff from X-Force all in like this issue and probably stuff I'm not even like thinking about and it's just like the characters become just kind of ciphers which i think has happened before like no pun intended actually now that i think about it like (laughs) um like i think we've talked about before with like non-davis stuff or non-claremont stuff of lovedell just does not i think understand the characters or feel the same way about them so they just become kind of stand-ins for whatever the story needs yeah, no, those are all very fair criticisms. I mean, were you a, were you a reader of 90s X-Men at the time? Oh, yes, yes. I read far too much of it to the point where, like, as overwhelming as it could have been jumping into this issue, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this, and I kind of remember this, and I yeah. vaguely remember this. And I guess to be fair to Excalibur... In this period, a lot of the mainstream X-Men books were not that much better. It was a lot of sort of trying to figure out what the books would be post-Claremont, like still even a couple years later. But I feel like Excalibur was such a like an idiosyncratic book to begin with that it's just much more obvious when it becomes sort of generic, like X-Men light. Yeah, no, yeah, I can see that. I mean, were you a fan of 90s X-Men stuff at the time? Like, I mean, were you all upon the extreme 90s? I, uh, I had several copies of the first issue of Volume 2 of X-Men and X-Force number one. Mm-hmm. Um, I listed Rob Liefeld as probably one of my top three artists along with like much better artists like Art Adams and Paul Smith. And at the, and I can still like appreciate some of what was going on then and like there's a nostalgia to it even when I see stuff now where I'm like it's recognizably just not good. I'm just like yeah but I that, this feels comfortable. I, I had diversified a bit at this point where I wasn't buying like everything Marvel but I I know I was buying like both X-Men titles and Excalibur and X-Force and probably, I don't know. I might've jumped off of X-Factor by this time. Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. the one that was good in this era. <laughs> I know. I, X, X Factor was a book that just never clicked for me. I mean, yeah. like, I, I, like I've read the Peter David stuff, like, since then, mm-hmm. and it is good, and I like some of the, like, Simonson's era stuff, but the whole time it was kind of coming out, it was just like a, I don't, it was even, as much as Excalibur, it was kind of a, like, they don't seem to know what this book is supposed to be, so it just mm-hmm. kind of changes what it is, like, every 15, 20 issues. And it was all the characters I wasn't yeah, interested in. I mean... Yeah, well, that's the problem, I think. Because I, I have weird thoughts about I, like, I think that the 
we've been making lots of jokes for the last several weeks about you know us the 90s-ness of, of all this i think that in this era excalibur is the d-list title you've got one a-list x-men book and you've got another one that's the b-list x-men book because you know it wasn't supposed to be that way but all the image guys left and then you've got you know that second tier which is where i guess x-force lives x-force and and probably x-factor and then you've got excalibur all the way down on like this tier and no one cares right yeah. like no one really even thinks about this book i actually had a question for you andrew because i don't think we've really talked about this before but i mean you were into x-men in the 90s right i mean how did you feel about this era as you were reading it oh, this era of excalibur specifically well i don't know this era of x-men books because i don't think we've really talked about it specifically with you before oh um for me this this was a letdown era this is very close to my jumping off point where i, I was with it because of the hype and, and sort of um the follow-through on the claremont and I, like even a story like this i think i mentioned last pod i think this is a cool idea to bring doug back it just it didn't work uh for the reasons i think we talked about previously so yeah no I, at this point i'm i'm clinging to the hope that it'll get good again and i'm about okay. to give up on that hope <laughs> Which is too bad because I didn't encounter the Ellis run until long after it had come out. Well, I mean, it's a long stretch. We've been we've been in yeah. the trenches with this for a while now. I'm definitely feeling that. But I am looking forward to our conversation today. And I want to ask Matt more specifically about it. And I also want to talk about contexts of, of cyber stories from the 90s and how they relate to some of the stuff that we have here and talk a little bit about cyberpunk, hopefully. Um, so yeah, let's do our old issue summary and then come back to a bunch of that stuff we didn't do a ton of cultural context stuff last week. We mostly talked about Doug Locke, so let's do the cultural context today. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We like you and so do our stuffed toys and imaginary friends. To catch all sentience up on where we're at this week, let's launch things with a plot summary. Excalibur number 79 opens with Zero, Doug Locke, Excalibur, and the family they rescued from Strife's drones teleporting into a base filled with Strife's drones, which is apparently also beneath the Pentagon. Thankfully, the drones are inactive for now. Apparently, this is a good place to hide because it's the last place Strife would look for them. I'm confused too, but we're just going to go with it. Above the base in the aforementioned Pentagon, Forge meets with Valerie Cooper. Valerie passes along a file about Carmen Pride, aka Kitty's father. Forge feels the mysterious info in the mysterious file is too shaky to take decisive action at this time, and decides Carmen is on his own, for now. Back on Muir Island, Professor X and Moira are working together on the legacy virus cure. They flash back to smooching on the French Riviera, after which Moira begins to cry and tells Xavier she has some distressing news about the virus. Elsewhere, the Phalanx Collective gathers. Leader Stephen Lang wants to know where Doug Ramsey has gone. Cameron Hodge tells him that he was somehow removed from the Collective, presumably by a technology more advanced than their own. Possible players being Sinister, Apocalypse, and Strife. An off-panel voice tells Lang to cool it, that losing Doug Ramsey will not affect their secret master plan. Back at Strife's base, Kitty's anti-robot racism dresses down and nearly disintegrates <laughs> Doug Locke. Britannic still wants to know what the mission is, and Megan tells Zero she feels his emotions. Zero grabs her and says this is great news because it proves he's sentient at last. Plus, he's got the secret to the legacy virus. Then again, maybe it's not great news, as Zero's self-proclaimed sentience activates the inactive droids, who are still bent on destroying Zero. We conclude on Muir Island, where Moira reveals her shocking news. The legacy virus can affect humans, and she knows for sure, for reasons she doesn't disclose. Dun-dun-dun! 
So, Matt, coming to you for first impressions, you already teased us a little bit with your first impressions, but let's get into it more. What, if anything, stood out to you about this issue? I think, I don't know if I would qualify this as like in good ways or bad ways, but I think just how much the issue is trying to do and trying to juggle. Like, I mean, it kind of reads as if you read crossovers like nowadays where they'll have like the main crossover book and then they have like all of these sort of satellite books where other things happen. This is what this book feels like, is it feels like one of those where it's just kind of moving little pieces of this like legacy virus plot along but in kind of big ways that are probably repeated in other books and then the phalanx stuff i'm i don't remember very well because i've never been particularly interested in the phalanx and so like it's referring to a lot of things that i kind of again only vaguely remember but yeah i was mostly just kind of taken with like trying to remember what was going on with brian and like why (laughs) brian was acting the way he was like i had a memory of like oh yeah britannic that's a thing but i had i could not remember like what it was or how it happened um yeah yeah megan kind of weirdly seemed like the leader which i don't know if that was supposed to be the case and i don't i must have i think i missed some books in between that got to that point but oh, she felt no. like very leader like <laughs> no <laughs> okay this this was, this was this was out of, this was out of nowhere it stood out to me too <laughs> okay yeah so it it's an odd book um and i like i know there have been times where i've really liked ken lashley's artwork or at least like liked ken lashley's artwork and this is not one of them i, I know the book had like two anchors so I, I'm sure there was like some deadline stuff going on oh, yeah. um, and the inking was not great. But yeah, th- I I won't say this is my least favorite issue of Excalibur because there's the one where Captain Britain goes to Wakanda <laughs> <laughs> that is like horrifyingly bad. Um, but this is this is up there. Yeah, I believe I said on a previous episode, I, I'm pretty sure the Wakanda ones are my least favorite. I had completely forgotten about them before this rereading, but subsequently, yeah. <laughs> you guys are saying that like you've never read Promethean Exchange. Oh, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, anyway, <laughs> we could debate what is the worst issue of Excalibur, but I think we could probably agree it's not this one, even this though not it's, it, not, no. yeah. Yeah, it's not this one. But yeah, I really noticed that stuff with Megan too. She takes a few lines of dialogue here where she's like explaining where they are and what were the bases and like the pentagons and i was just like what is this I, I don't understand i mean it's still like such a problem with megan and britannic how i mean you spoke about people being ciphers before i mean they still have zero personality we still have no idea why they are the way that they are they're just here to say dialogue and it's really getting old they're extreme anna <laughs> I know, I know. (laughs) They're extreme and joyless and emotionless. I love it. I love it. I don't know. Other first impressions from the rest of the team. How are you feeling this week, Andrew? Uh, I'm glad you asked me first because I think I know what Mav's statement is going to be. That in spite of exactly as Matt was saying, there's a lot of things being juggled. Nothing happens in this issue. Uh, It's just just a bunch of people around talking and that's it. And normally we like that, but it's yeah, hard when it is, the right? only person with emotion, well, the two people with emotions, well, no, okay, there are a lot of emotions here. What I'm am I saying? Emotion. Laura is yeah. very emotional and like Zero much. is yeah. learning to have, a- yeah, a little too emotional. <laughs> Zero is learning to have emotions and Kitty has a lot of racist emotions, yeah. but, <laughs> you know, which I want to talk about clearly, <laughs> but, but yeah, but then there's still so many people who are just wooden and I just, because mm-hmm. like, if it was like, if it was a dem- 
domestic space issue in which I really felt like we were learning something about people. But even the flashback with Moira and Charles, I feel like I don't learn anything about them. Oh, it's such an odd part. scene. Yeah, mm-hmm. I want to talk about that scene. Yeah. Well, go oh. ahead, Mav. What are your first impressions? So Andrew said <laughs> early, early on that like this was one of those things where you like you could see that there were there's a there's an idea here. <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah there's an idea this is not this is not my least favorite x fact of uh, excalibur what i appreciate about this is i feel like for once there is a story that is attempting to be told labdell has something in mind is it the story i would have told no but there appear to be intentions there appear to be moving parts where he's like oh i'm setting this up to do clever things the zero stuff is and i'm not joking is legit interesting to me like yeah. i actually like the the story storyline of oh my god you can feel my emotions that means i have them that's some writing that's legit writing it's buried in just crap like there's There is so much garbage here that it's just like, ugh. But I can appreciate that he is, I always say I, I want to, you know, I want to read the book that's in front of me and not like, I don't I don't think it's fair to just go, I wish Alan Davis was here. I wish Alan Davis was, you know, I always, I wish Alan Davis was here today with me now. But, that, 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 <laughs> but, that, but that's not a thing that's going to happen, right? So like, he's not coming back. This is what the book is now. And for what the book is now, I feel like he is trying to tell a story i feel like it is rushed the thing with the artwork that matt pointed out it's clearly rushed because you could always tell not just because there's two inkers there's two inkers both of whom are doing frankly shoddy work for you know uh, for professional work but also go through and try to count backgrounds because there Mm -hmm. mostly aren't any and anytime there's a book where people are just standing in space most of the time it's because no one had time to go through and draw back and draw backgrounds so it's a lot of people just standing in front of solid colors for most of this book And that means that they were behind. But, you know, it was the 90s. And in the 90s, you didn't take time off. You didn't just say, we're not chipping this week. You know, they were going to make the schedule one way or the other. And this feels like someone trying to make the schedule. I don't know. It's a mixed bag for me. Yeah, yeah. I definitely felt that rushness of it. I mean, just it looks physically loose and unfinished. I mean, it clearly Mm -hmm. was a rush job on the art compared to some of the other stuff that Lashley's turned in. Okay, well, let's talk about the cyberpunk cultural context stuff. And I mean, I'm using cyberpunk in the most general and generous possible terms <laughs> it, i mean yeah i mean it, it's such a broad category and i think this is definitely in conversation with that with the phalanx mm-hmm. but um but i thought i would put that to you matt to see what cultural contexts or influences you saw coming up in this comic you know stuff from the 80s and 90s that might be influencing the depictions of of robot intelligences that we have here and cybernetic intelligences that we have here like the thing that kind of jumped out at me especially timing wise of like the mid-ish 90s is kind of like data lore and borg and and the borg and star trek the next generation you know you have here's the robot who wants to be human here's the robot who is perfectly fine being a robot and feels sort of superior and then here's this like sort of hive mind larger threat and i don't know if that's what lovedell was going for but it felt very kind of surficial and that and some of that might be my sort of bias towards at this point like stories about robots that want to be human seem like the easiest story to tell like that seems to be every robot story 
story short of like the robots are taking over. But I do wonder, I mean, one of the things I like one of the questions you kind of had in your notes that I was thinking about is, you know, what was going on kind of culturally too. And I had this thought and kind of looked it up just to make sure. So this was not off the top of my head, but like, you know, (laughs) this was written three years after Y2K started being talked about for the first time. So there is this kind of like fear of technology thing that's starting Mm -hmm. to manifest around this period. It's also, I think like the year 2000, if you were like, if all of us are old enough to have been around to know, like to think of like, oh yeah, the year 2000 is this like science fiction benchmark of like, that's the future. Um, It's like coded that way. And we're like barreling headlong toward it. And so I think there's a lot of stuff kind of wrestling with those ideas. And I mean, you get stuff in the movies like the net and like random things about like how computers work and how and hackers and stuff like that, where it's like, we don't really understand how computers work or technology works, but we're definitely worried about it. Yeah. (laughs) So I think this is definitely kind of a part of that, like, while also kind of working with x-men stuff because i think the phalanx i don't remember exactly when the phalanx first appeared but i think it's probably not too long before this right right now basically in okay yeah 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 because yeah, before like that it's cl- pretty clearly like a board type of thing to mm-hmm. me but well the phalanx covenant crossover this is sort of a hanger on like you said with the um where where you have in the modern crossover you have from the pages of secret wars it's the carol core mm-hmm. this is one of those books it's a uh, phalanx covenant is going on and is the main storyline and we can't force people to read Excalibur so we're going to have a crossover but not crossover. I'm interested in unpacking some of those anxieties a little bit and the thing that really stood out to me in terms of the representation of technology and bodies here was that two-page spread where we check in with the Phalanx Collective and we have these cybernetic intelligences represented with the stereotypical 90s superhero bodies and I mean the question that I kind of had for all of us I guess was having to do with how superhero comics have represented you know technology over the year i mean obviously technology is a huge part of the superhero genres you know superheroes are differentiated from earlier pulp heroes in part through the fact that they embrace technology to a certain extent and yet as we talked about i think with claire wall when we were talking about post-humanism and transhumanism in superhero comics they often come up short of fully integrating with technology in terms of there always has to be this like identifiable human body because Mm -hmm. you don't want to be subsumed by technology because the dream of that very male-coded individualism is so much a part of the fantasy that's at the heart of the superhero genre. And it's just always been funny to me the way when they try to incorporate the internet into superhero comics, they just struggle so hard to figure out how that would impact this world and like whether it would even be relevant. And it often seems just like a non-concern in this genre, except in issues like this, where again, we have people... interfacing with technology and yet again with these identifiable very male superhero bodies and I was just wondering about everybody else's thoughts about that like am I am I the only one that finds these kind of gestures strange or are they interesting well I was gonna say I think it it could be interesting I mean it's (laughs) if you think about it in terms of like the you know the robot wanting to be human kind of trope and the characters that they're showing I think on that two-page spread are like characters who used to be human and are now technology essentially 
essentially. And so they're holding on to like a human form can kind of be that sort of like repressed desire to be human again, or they can't quite let go of their humanity. But it is it is weird. Like, I mean, if you think about a character like Ultron, there's no reason why Ultron should have a body at all that looks even remotely human. It's this like superior technology that tries to wipe out humanity. So why make a body that people can punch other than it's superhero comics and they need to punch something? Yeah, um, yeah. Because there's a problem of, there's a problem of visualizing these things, right? I mean, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we have certain conventions of representation in this space and we have to visualize things as punchable bodies, right? So I mean, maybe it's just reducible to that and I'm overthinking it. Yeah, but also why even have a human body? Like if you if you're going to have a body that needs to be punched, Godzilla, make your body <laughs> Godzilla. That's going to be at least a little harder to take down maybe than <laughs> like a you know, a 6 foot tall humanoid. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm going to fall on the interesting side. This is why I'm wondering cuz Andrew said he, th- he thought he knew where I was going to go with it. Where I'm going with it, and this is why I think this episode, this episode, this issue is fascinating, is because of the cultural context. So I want to just rewind for the listeners a little bit. Like Anna, you called this the you know the cyberpunk era. So I just want to point out that cyberpunk as a concept is very much an 80s idea. William Gibson comes up with it. He's the guy who writes Johnny Mnemonic. He writes Neuromancer. And Neuromancer, his novel, comes out in 1984. And it's not an immediate hit. It's really good, but it's not an immediate hit because the way people thought about like sort of sci- sci-fi, post-humanism, mo- they're monsters. Blade Runner is a very good example. Blade Runner, I believe, is also 1984 when that film comes out. After Blade Runner, you have stuff like Max Hedrum is 84. But like you're not having realistic a realistic internet in film at that point. You fast forward to like 1992. That's when the movie Sneakers comes out, which I love. If you mm-hmm. have seen Sneakers, go and see Sneakers. But yeah. Sneakers has actual hacking in it, where the hackers are just people, you know, sitting at like a computer, and like you see River Phoenix gets to sit at a computer and type numbers, and it's boring, and people are like, oh yeah, <laughs> and, it, and it, but I mean it's it's visually boring because he's mm-hmm. just sitting there, right? And like there's a heist going on at the same time and the heist part is all the interesting bits because the computer bits are boring so a year later you get jurassic park with my favorite it's a unix system that the little girl gets to do (laughs) because because, and that by the way that's that that's um that's fsn file system navigator it's an sei product i've actually used it it actually is a unix system but it's a demo it's not interesting you would never lock down your park security with that system because it's dumb but as anna said said you needed a visual thing but this is how infrequent movies about about cyberpunk and technology are at this era but this com- this comic book comes out in 1994 um 1994 has the movie disclosure which is a film that i enjoy with um, michael douglas and demi moore it also uses vr for the hacking but then after 94 the next year in 1995 ghost in the shell golden eye hackers Johnny Mnemonic, Judge Dredd, The Net. These movies all come out in like 1995. There are all these films about the, because people, because we're hitting this weird point where not only is it Y2K about to happen and we're starting to get really scared about it, but we hit this point where the internet, which is this thing that nobody knew about five years earlier, like in 1990, 1989, the internet is just a bunch of guys, you know, geeks in using ARPA products. It's it's like 1% of the American population. By like 1997, 
97, it's like 20%. By like the year 2000, it's 40%. And then like by like 2002 or something like that, something like 60% of the people in, in America are just on the net. It balloons in this period. So people like really get an idea of, you know, what computers can be if they're integrated into our daily life. And that's scary. So I think that's where you get anxieties of, okay, life has fundamentally changed in this four or five year period in a way that hasn't happened since the atomic age. Television adoption was much slower than internet adoption. So I think what ends up happening is you end up with these people with anxieties of, well, what does it mean to be a computer person? And that's why you have things like, do we have to have a body? Because we can't be doing fiction, visual fiction, at least not, you know, like sneakers where it's a guy sitting in a computer. You need somebody to punch. You need something to look at. You need Jurassic Park, not sneakers. And so I think that's where you get all these humanized characters because it, it's a lot easier to map my anxieties about something onto not just something I can punch, but onto a physical being, a data, a vision, a zero, than it is for me to map it onto an amorphous cloud of nanotechnology. Yeah, I mean, sort of semi-related, but <laughs> I just was thinking about some more contemporary hacker movies where you've had hackers played by like Chris Hemsworth and Hugh Jackman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, like, and I just always find that the most hilarious thing, taking these jacked up superhero guys and like, you know, they're hackers though. Like this is totally is important and essential to his <laughs> Well, I, I, the, on 100 pounds for this role <laughs> the the only scene i remember from swordfish which is the hugh jackman hacker movie mm -hmm. is a scene where he has to hack something i don't remember what while he's getting a blowjob at the same time yeah and that's that's the, that's the big and tension a gun to his head yeah, yeah. oh both oh man what a great movie wow. what a great movie i know for a fact <laughs> i've seen that, that movie Tuesday. two times <laughs> yeah. yeah i just call that all the time <laughs> Anyway, Andrew, did you have thoughts about that, about how this this particular comic relates to that cultural context? Yeah, I, I think it's out of time. I, I think, I mean, I agree with everything everybody has said, but cyberpunk as a literary genre was basically over at this point in time. Yeah, Snow Crash yeah. by Stevenson had come out and um, um, The Difference Engine by Gibson and I think Sterling uh, mm -hmm. had come out, which signals the transition towards steampunk as a genre. So it, it feels like it missed its moment a little bit for me. And, and I find it not just that, like in terms of being delayed, but I find it a little bit shallow in its application. Most notably the counterculture element, the, the punk element of cyberpunk. I don't see manifest in the phalanx at all. I think they're kind of quite the opposite. So I think it yeah. wants to be cyberpunk but i feel like it's behind the times and doesn't really understand what cyberpunk is so to me it just it doesn't it doesn't compare to like literally any gibson short story um yeah but do you think it's behind the times literarily but like but definitely as i was pointing out it's spinning up in film right like it's but i think it's a different yeah. movement i think that the the and i think that this comic book thing is you know as comic book culture often is wedged in between the literary and the film the visual yeah sort of a transition yeah no that makes sense to me we, we, we often and talk about this in science fiction as the the filmic genre tends to be about 10 years behind the literary yes. genre pretty consistently actually which is kind of mm -hmm. funny so i'm not sure where comics yeah. fall in that spectrum but <laughs> i know i always think comics are like 20 years behind but that's not really the way that works it's just <laughs> that it gets changed and modified when it appears a couple like because i want this to be interesting like i want the whole phalanx thing to be interesting but it just feels a lot like it's any villain that we'd have in a superhero comic book with just like a cape of technology you know like i mean it's just it's yeah. just a new skin for the same kind of stuff that we always 
do in this genre. And it should be more than, I mean, the threat of infection and stuff that you also have with the Borg, which is sort of carried over into some of this stuff with techno virus and stuff. Like, that's interesting, but still, it's not really, we would have just done that with the brood in an earlier story, you know? And now mm-hmm. it's like a technological threat, which again, is different in theory, but like, it doesn't play out differently in the text necessarily. Anyway, go ahead, Matt. I do think there's something potentially interesting. I don't know how much, like, this is me just giving the book way too much credit or reading into it. And this this is the part where, like, in my bio, I said, like, this will all make sense in my head. But this is kind of thinking about my <laughs> dissertation a little bit. Because I was thinking about, like, Doug Ramsey and Warlock prior to this, like, the relationship that they had is a very unusual relationship and is, I think, easy to apply a queer reading to. Oh, but yes. it's a queer reading that can't just be an explicit, like, because Warlock doesn't really have a gender. So it becomes, a like, this weird sort of unfixed uh, queer reading on their sexuality. And if you think of that as like how that applies to things that are sort of hybrid and, you know, Doug Locke being this like hybrid version of Doug Ramsey and Warlock and connecting that to their relationship, it is like something new that's being created and something that's like difficult to categorize. And I think like the explicitness of like he I, he insists on being called Doug Locke at a certain point as a being that is separate from like it is not Doug Ramsey, it is not Warlock, it is something together. I think that's interesting and the technology is kind of a part of that. I think where it gets a little tricky is that sort of connection to like infection and the legacy virus. I don't know if that's an intentional sort of thematic connection in this issue or just kind of like an accidental like, oh, hey, we're talking about different kinds of infection. I don't know. I I feel like there is possibly something there in looking at like Doug and Warlock and applying it to Doug Lock as a being. I find that more interesting than the phalanx itself. Yeah, and we you don't have the benefit of listening to our previous conversation, because <laughs> it won't be mm-hmm. out at the time of this recording. But we did talk about queer readings of Doug Locke in our last episode, okay. um, and sort of our hopes for that. <laughs> now they're not really carried <laughs> through. But yeah, basically, 100% totally agree with you. Yeah. Um, but let's let's say, let me segue from that to asking you about this Kitty and Doug Lock scene, Matt. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> like, why is this scene here? Like, why are we mobilizing Kitty having this particular prejudice against this kind of existence here? Like, I mean, if I'm being generous, it's just her being upset about the seeming return of Doug and not handling it well. But what was your read on this scene, Matt? I think that's what Lovedell's going for because I mean, it does. Does make like that's one of the things where it actually kind of makes sense for Doug Locke to be in this book is like there was this relationship between like Doug Ramsey and Kitty Pride to mm-hmm. some extent of like you know they were the computer nerds at the time at the X Mansion for a while they did have like some type of friendship I think there's an earlier issue of Excalibur yeah where like like the discs that the programs that they worked on together get like destroyed and so mm-hmm. I think that might be Lovedell kind of trying to sort of mine that connection for something interesting but he does everything in such a sort of like high-pitched melodramatic tone that it requires him to make Kitty come across as very just straight up like bigoted and you know rigid and unflexible and doesn't take the time to kind of get into oh this is why she's feeling the way she's feeling or why she's acting the way she's acting other than just her stating the fact that she's offended by him looking like Doug Ramsey. Well it just seemed like such an odd stance for Kitty and I mean again a hundred percent Scott Lobdell doesn't have any <laughs> 
his mind the queer readings that we bring to you know Doug and Warlock merging and also the queerness of Kitty's phasing power which as we've talked about before it's a power that breaches boundaries it's a power that can put people inside other people it's a lot of different things you can do with that but just the idea that Kitty would have such a firm stance on the difference between technology and humanity and this would be such a line for her was just a real weird take on the character to me, especially as a character who's associated with technology. She knows Warlock. She knows Warlock. It's not I know, just Doug. I know. She, yep. She's friends with Warlock, so this is rude. But yeah, but like, very. <laughs> I mean, like, and also, your best friend's a dragon. You don't have the, the feeling on humanity that the rest of us do. I, I well, you know what, you know what she does here. She does the thing of like because she's called bigoted, and then she does the like really bad like <laughs> white person. thing thing of being like there's nothing worse that anybody can do than to call me a racist and you're like oh boy <laughs> right that is uh, but like I mean, such a big white fragility moment thing it is and i think there's intention there actually and that's why i think it's interesting i don't think it works with the character if i look at kitty pride yeah. as a whole because there's so much contradiction there but i can give him the benefit of the doubt and say no he's trying to do the fact that she's looking at her dead best friend's face that's got to be hard okay fine mm-hmm. and I've never had that experience. Everyone I know who's ever died is still dead, right? So, like, I I can't say what it would be like if the guy that you were really good friends, you know. I mean, and Doug was one of her best friends. It's not even just, like, a guy she knows. They're really close, and he died, and she wept, and she mourned him, you know, vocally in this book several times. And now he's standing there, and that's and but acting weird. And I, I get why that's weird. But I don't know. I think the fact that she is out of line and doesn't like that she's being called on it, that I think can read very Kitty to me if it were, you know, it could be written better. I've said before, like the, the thing the, the thing that's supposed to be great about Kitty is you're supposed to go, I would be her. I would be friends with her. I'd be dating her. And it's like, no, you wouldn't. Kitty would hate you because she's Kitty can be holier than thou. That's like what makes her interesting. It's one of her flaws. And it's, you know, one of the things that I love most about Kitty is when Oyana used to call Kitty on, on her bullshit. So I think that this is Kitty being confronted with her own bullshit and not dealing with it well. And I think that is an inherently interesting thing because of the fragility that, that Anna is talking about. It's not it's not the handle the best. I get it. It's not it's not the best written, but you know, I'm I'm grasping at straws here, or you know, <laughs> scraps, <laughs> because that's what that's what I'm given in this issue. It's a it's a bunch of ideas ideas none of which are fully realized and i think that's one of the more interesting ideas as opposed to the way brian and megan behave which i just think is boring i think this is interesting yeah i i actually don't disagree because i think similar to like you know he's trying to pull from something that's you know clearly there i think kitty as sort of like righteously indignant is a character trait you know Mm -hmm. we've seen her go off on people who are being bigoted with like a kind of righteous indignation or even the like professor xavier is a jerk is like you know petulant but still it's that righteous indignation so that it makes sense that that's an emotional point that she reaches it's just not for this like yeah this shouldn't be the immediate response this should be the like first she feels sad and she's wondering what's going on and then maybe she gets angry if she realizes that it's not actually Doug or something but they just skip over that straight to like this reaction yeah that's my comp- 
complaint with it just because like this is we talk about Excalibur being a lower tier storyline in the X franchise, right? Giving Excalibur the return of, of Doug Ramsey and Warlock simultaneously, that's a gift for a storyteller. There's a lot of invested emotion in there. There's a mm-hmm. lot of continuity there. So I, I think the bar was very high. And I, I think that sense of like disappointment when it's not perfectly executed maybe reflects poorly on this this issue once again. I think the obvious thing to do is, and this is, you know, writing the better story, she should want to hug him. She should be overjoyed and then pissed when he doesn't recognize her yeah, or when he doesn't yeah. or he does recognize her but has no has no sense of affection for her or doesn't care that makes more because then it leaves her devastated because oh i thought i was getting a second chance with my friend you know with somebody i took for granted because you know kitty was always very aware that doug had a crush on her and didn't return it so she's got remorse then and she can feel bad and not feel like this just feels hollow because frankly nothing more comes of it she's basically treating him the same same way that she used to treat Barrett and they're not the same character and it doesn't work the same way. The thing that gets me about it is like, and we are going to have more of Kitty's feelings about Doug Locke. She's going to like, anyway, make them go and dig up his grave and stuff. We're going to get more of this, <laughs> but it's just the fact that she's upset and she goes straight to a place of extreme bigotry because he's like, Oh, I don't fit your narrow definition of a sentient being. And then, you know, he calls her narrow minded and we see like the, you know, <laughs> the kill bill sirens go off and we zoom in on her eye and she's <laughs> narrow minded and then she just loses it right i know i know but i mean the rhetoric that she employs there she's like you know us real people have a right to assert our yeah. physical power over you and she sticks her hand into him and tries to like disintegrate him out of her wrath for his unreality relative to her reality and that is an extreme dehumanization that felt very out of place I totally agree that Kitty being indignant and reacting badly, that's in character, but it's just to do so from a place of like (laughs) anti-robot, anti-difference bigotry was real out of place for me, especially when you contrast it with the other thing going on at the same time is both of the children from the human family accepting the robots, you know, going Mm -hmm. up to Doug Locke and being like, oh, we like you and so does my pet rat, like so does my stuffed rabbit and like, oh, thank you for saving us, Zero. You're like our friend now. And then juxtaposed kitty just going mm-hmm. extreme like right. anti-robot stance it's just super weird well and kitty was friends with widget for like yes. how many issues like I know, one of her I know. close friends was a robot like a yes. floating robot head that's even better I, I was yeah i was thinking of lockheed but yeah you're right widget is and she always considered widget real like she never she she mm-hmm. talked to him uh, we had the conversation on this show a long time ago about you know whether or not lockheed's a pet regardless of whether or not we think Lockheed's a pet. Kitty doesn't think Lockheed's a pet, right? right? So Kitty has a very expansive vision of what humanity is. And that's why I think it's it's got to just be, well, I guess my bigotry comes out when it's the face of somebody I love, you know. Like I like there's no other way to there's Ugh. no other way to do it because because she's, you know, she's been friends with other robots. It's just so bizarre. Like I could see a different character reacting this way. You know, this is like how Quicksilver would treat the Vision, right? I mean, right. it'd be like mm-hmm. You can't date him. He's a toaster, blah, blah, blah. But like, <laughs> Kitty, 
Kitty would never say that. I don't so know. this clearly is intentional. Know. I mean, especially with the with the zero moments and the children. That that's why I'm like those out of character. Mm-hmm. But I this is not a thing where I mean, you talked about like the queerness not being something that Lovedell t- uh, intends, but we we read it in there. Whereas this is his intention. His intention here is to make a statement about differing views of humanity and and an allegory of racism with the language that she's using versus the language the children use. That's the clear unambiguous intention of this book he just has kitty on the yeah list. no definitely definitely yeah. i know i mean it's just so odd though because like then we're imposing on kitty oh she has to have this journey of learning to be accepting and to the extent that kitty went on that journey with kurt all those years ago that was so long ago she is well mm-hmm. beyond going on that journey at this point i mean we had a whole storyline <laughs> revealing that she was in fact widget and you know has merged with technology and become a robot herself and i believe she's aware of that so again you could have done a different story (laughs) i know but you could have done a different story where maybe some of (laughs) but maybe some of her anxiety about her own future transformation would feed into her having these emotions about things i mean all of that is missing here it just again it just comes out of left field and it is one of those instances where you're jettisoning all established characterization in order to do this little speech that you wanted to do but it just makes no sense coming from this character to me anyway um let's talk about a few other things i want to talk about the charles and moira section of this comic book before we run out of time so matt what did you make of this section i found the flashback just incredibly weird but i'll leave that open-ended did you get anything out of this charles and moira section from this comic book i mean my first thought was so professor xavier was always a jerk because literally (laughs) he makes a guy humiliate himself just because he makes some comments to his friend about oh no nerds are kissing seems (laughs) like a bit of an overreaction so weird I mean, yeah. okay. it's also, questions, also questions. unambiguously like, true. Like, there's yeah. a nerd kissing. So, like, you know, deal but with like, it. But, like, this was one of those, like, the words and the pictures didn't work for me because I was like, okay, how are they nerds? Like, he's, like, drawn as this super hot guy who just happens to be bald, which doesn't make you not hot. Like, he's drawn with a perfect body. And then Moira is drawn, you know, attractive, but happens to be wearing glasses. And so You're they're like, oh, look at... I know, like, look at these nerds making out. And I was like, I don't know. They look pretty hot and cool. Like, what are we trying to convey here? And then what did he make the guy do? Like, he lowered his inhibitions, but he just, like, runs away. I was, like, really unclear. He pulls off his trunks um, after, I believe, getting an erection. That is the lifting (laughs) a towel of, I have an accidental boner, is what that is. Like, And it's like, he goes, public B. Ooh. And then he's like, woohoo. Okay. That's clearly Charles has made the dude horny, and that's the joke. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's so like invasive. Not a joke. <laughs> well, and like, and it's such an invasive thing that, like, even if you're going for it for a joke, it just highlights, like, yeah, that character's kind of a dick. And then, I mean, the other thing is, I've been reading X Men comics for like over thirty years. I still barely understand the Charles Moira relationship. I think because it always exists in the past, and like through one or two page flashbacks every few years. That I'm like, okay, I know, I kind of know they were together. I know at some point they, like, I, I honestly genuinely do not remember if they... I think had a child or didn't, but I don't think they did. They do I think I always mix up Proteus and Legion in yes, my head. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of people do. That is a they they both have illegitimate children around this 
point. Actually, yeah. I guess yeah. Moira did Moira did marry um, Proteus's father, I guess. Yes, she yeah. left him because he was abusive. But, but they both have children who turn out to be evil X-Men villains. Yes. But not together, just with other people. <laughs> so it all be so even before you get into role. like yeah, even before you get into the Hickman of it, like it's already confusing to me. Yes. Um and and then my last point, like this kind of gets back to the like multiple inkers and clearly rushed. The sequence where he makes the guy like throw off his shorts, count how many times the bridge of Moira's glasses disappears. Because oh. I'm guessing either Lashley didn't draw it or he drew it, but the inker accidentally didn't ink it and erased it when they erased the pencil that two-page spread it was distracting to me and how her glasses change like they are completely different glasses from like one frame to the next so yeah yeah. didn't get a lot out of it but (laughs) basically that i was just like this is a lot going on i I think the thing that bothered me about it it, because we talk about walking back characterizations moira becomes hysterical and is patronized by charles in the present and then there's a flashback in which she's patronized by charles once again Mm -hmm. uh you've got like inception of character assassination there because again that's not moira mctaggart at all uh she's an elite scientist in the same class as him and just having him being like there there calm your worries twice Mm -hmm. in the same scene is kind of frustrating again as a fan of that character yes absolutely my observation was going to be significant dumber than that which was it's like this flashback is supposed to reveal something important about the present but it's just this real nebulous thing where she's like so you're saying in the future there'll be some common disaster that you know humans and mutants will have to face and he's like yes I am so smart and it's like (laughs) I mean there could be any number of reasons that that would be true alien invasion climate change I mean why would this be some special theory that he has are you saying that there could be something that would threaten everyone on earth and it's like yeah yeah i'm pretty sure that's a given i don't really get what we're talking like i get what we're going for in this scene but that confused me and it's just lack of anythingness <laughs> like i don't know did you have thoughts about we have talked about the legacy virus a little bit before um i think when we talked to allison humphrey and when we talked to claire but um do you have any thoughts about i don't know that whole storyline matt anything you want to say about the way that that storyline's progressing here like i did sort of like the scene where charles has the line about you know out of all of the things we face the idea that we'd be taken down by a virus i mean you know sort of making the point of this being a different kind of threat that they're faced with but yeah do you find that storyline interesting at all yeah i mean that's probably the most interesting thing the idea of like you know that is the threat they can't punch essentially but it's it's one of those things where it's like i know it's well in intentioned but it's also like seems several years late to do sort of a like hiv aids allegory Mm -hmm. do it in this very melodramatic way that's also somehow flat and then in this in this issue in particular the thing that jumped out at me that i was like oh this is not good the idea that the real danger is that when humans could also get it if that was commentary on like how people actually responded to hiv aids that it didn't really matter until like heterosexual people got it that would be interesting but they're not doing that they're just kind of like repeating that beat without commentary and even i mean i don't remember if this is before or after iliana dies from the legacy virus is it after after. yeah even that could also be something to look at as like the thing that is the most like that gets the most attention or the most pain is like a child dying of this but again that's not what they're going for they're going for like melodrama that's my memory of like the legacy virus overall is that it's both it's both melodrama and it's deck clearing of we have too many mutants that we need to kind of like get rid of yeah i mean i've always been of two minds about the effectiveness of it as a metaphor like uh, is 
is it exploiting, you know, the AIDS epidemic to tell a melodramatic story about mutants? Or is it helping us understand that real world context better through its metaphor? And I think I usually come more on the side of it's exploiting. But Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that's a very subjective point. I think some people like it more than I do. But yeah, for me, the commentary never gets there to where it feels like it's contributing something to the conversation more that it's just stealing pathos from a horrible reality and not really not really doing what it should be doing with it but um that's sort of a larger conversation perhaps i'm a little different there in that i i I don't think i distinguish between the two i think it's doing both and i think yeah um, yeah i think the reason i think this is interesting is yes what matt said is you could do a story where you are talking about the allegory that people did not care about the aids virus when it was just gay people but straight people can get it you know same thing with like many things that affect only the black community it's like oh it's white people now now we got to pay attention so like yes i i get that labdell is just kind of doing that not so much as a commentary you know he's going oh well this will be even scarier once it can get the humans the real people i get that he's not being clever i don't care because i read everything as a cultural whole and part of this story is you have us pointing that out right the criticism is yeah the story needs to invoke real people to borrow kitty's term because that's what you know that's how labdell as a as an author seems to view it it is more melodramatic it is scarier because now it's getting the normies right like i think that that is culturally interesting as a statement that the story makes even if it's a statement that is you know sort of made by the critics on a podcast 30 years later yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean but I, but I think i do think that that's part of it right like i think yeah, that yeah. the value in our show or in the kinds of work that we do not, i mean i don't even mean i don't mean it to be like our show <laughs> no i mean but like the the value the value in what we what the four of us do for a living is in having these conversations yes that is that is a, <laughs> a very positive Positive way of looking at it but yeah that that's that's a positive interpretation of it and we are definitely going to revisit some questions about the legacy virus and as you were explaining that i was like i totally get what lobdell's trying to do with you know kitty having the thing about not real people and then us having the revelation of it spreading to the human population and how those things are supposed to be linked but again it just mm-hmm. doesn't still doesn't work for me because i know kitty's right. gonna go on this journey of having to like recognize mm-hmm. him as a real person but because it just feels so out of character for her it just feels like why would she have to go on that journey i'm still frustrated it's like you're making the characters make the story that you want but they're not being who they are anyway it's fine (laughs) we we will we will revisit some of these conversations all right um let's go around and do some final thoughts and i'll start with you andrew anything that you want to talk about that we didn't get a chance um i think it came up briefly uh, in your intro but um i do like that forge continues to be this story prompt guy who makes stories happen just because of his vagueness yeah that's a weird role a really weird niche in this universe but he's got it yeah yep he's gonna be there with that mystery file and have a whole page conversation about people's roles and other comic books and where the file came from and let's talk about filing some work shall we oh well we have to get back to our regular story that page was also strange but yeah point taken um, mav any final thoughts about this one two actually because one's really quick because we're going to talk about it more on a future episode 
episode, which was Matt started to touch on the fact that um, most of the Moira Chuck relationship is always in the past, but like there's clearly, you know, sort of a present relationship going on here in this book where, you know, they're flirting, they're getting close. You're seeing, you know, the patronization of their relationship. That's just how Chuck treats people. You know, he's not, <laughs> not a good person. Um, but um, I think this is interesting because we're going to be dealing with some some uh, some non-monogamy here because Chuck's married. I don't know if that, I don't know if it's clear, <laughs> but Chuck is officially the Lilandra's official consort right now. Um, he's as close to the Shire Empire has as married, and you know he's clearly having you know relations going on here. So that's interesting. And Moira never broke up with Banshee. They're together, as far as I know, at this point in the comics. But you know, whatever. <laughs> so, that's, you know, but that's not my final thought. My final thought is you know next to last page here we have Zero's penis, which um I went to sort of yeah yeah <laughs> sort of go because. Like with with all the I, fl- I flipped to that page because bodies. yeah mm-hmm. yeah this um all the smoothness of the male bodies in in most in general and it's not that it's like four pages from the end if I had a lot of time I'd talk about golden spiral spirals and and how your eye is drawn across a comic page <laughs> but you are intended to look at zero's cock here that is where the evidence like like that is that is where the eye is drawn on this page you are intended to spiral around that page and land right at his penis which Megan is nice looking at follow her eye line mm-hmm. she's like oh this is an anatomically correct robot just so you know in case you're wondering he's got junk under there i don't know why because he's not he's not an android he's not even a synthesoid but he has a penis <laughs> there's no ears uh, penis um it was and, incredibly and I, I weird like we i mean just, i just yeah because anna yeah, I, feel, I feel like you might have thoughts on that because you wrote a whole article <laughs> Well, I was like willing to just chalk it up to the rush job of the penciling and some weird inking, but it definitely is very noticeable in that image. And again, really stands out because Lashley has a tendency to do especially flat crotches, not always, but you know, in the last few issues, I mean, I think I speculated Mm -hmm. on one of our past episodes that it was almost like he got a note about it because he seemed to change what he was doing after, after that particularly um, questionable Nightcrawler cover where like... Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I don't know he had like a ball sack where his abs should be as we talked about at the time um but yeah I mean if that was intentional it could work with this whole meaning of him gaining sentience gaining more of a sense of humanity I mean when I talked about the vision in that piece I talked about how his anxieties about sexuality and gender related to his quest to figure out how he fits in the world and you know if I was going to be super generous maybe this is on purpose in, in that context uh i don't think i'm willing to be that generous i think it's probably mostly either they got away with it or it's sort of just an accident of inking but um it definitely stood out though i i this is the most that i can really say about it definitely an an, an odd choice uh uh given <laughs> again as you said like given britannic is not drawn that way but i mean <laughs> on the splash page yeah. on the second page of this issue the splash page brian is clear clearly you know without yeah. dick <laughs> he is, he yeah. is, you know he is smooth smooth as a as a Ken doll but then we we get to the end of the book and zero is not drawn that way well i mean white spandex white spandex is a challenge to wear uh as someone who has worn white leggings before definitely a challenge and uh i don't know maybe just that that choice of costume is exposing a little bit more than it should i'm not sure i mean costume or skin or whatever it is because we're not really sure with zero probably his skin i i think it's costume (laughs) but you think it's costume so does he have a face under there I don't think so. I, I I like to think that he's got no faith, no ears, no eyes, no mouth, but he does have a dick for some reason. Okay, okay. <laughs> I don't know why. I uh, have been seeing him pop up 
with people playing the Marvel Snap game, and it was the first, and I thought it was so odd since it's not a character that I'd thought about at all before revisiting this era of Excalibur, but uh, Marvel Snap will do that. Um, Matt, did you have any final thoughts that you wanted to share before we leave this issue behind? Yeah, mine mine is also weirdly costume related, which you were just talking about. First of all, like, this is the worst costume Brian Braddock has ever had, um, yeah. I think, in anything ever, and he's not he's had some not great ones, but this one is just, I, I don't even know what's going on with it. And I know this is not the start of this with Kitty, but this is kind of probably my first time back since this has happened. This is like, for me, the start of Kitty Pride just never, ever having a good costume again after her sort of early Excalibur Shadowcat costume. After that, it's she's almost always wearing the most generic possible X-Men costume for some reason, and it bothers Ooh, me. <laughs> see, you and Mav are going to get into like, it because Mav well, loves this costume. Yeah, I Ooh. love this. I love this costume for Kitty. I think this is the worst that Lashley draws it in his entire run. This issue in particular is not like it feels rushed, but I like the idea of the costume. I, I talked about it a lot on one episode, but in, in brief, Kitty as a character had always been I don't want to be a kid. I don't want to be a kid. I'm not one of the X babies, meaning the new mutants. I don't need to wear the 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 simple costume. Um, from the second they give her as Sprite, they give her a generic X Man costume. Like she's constantly trying to. I want to be Ariel. I want to have this. I want to have you know. Here's my mm-hmm. different costume. She's constantly trying to do that. She's trying to grow up. And to me, it's meaningful to the point that when she's finally an adult, when she's finally able to be her own person, she goes to wear a more or less generic X-Men costume. It's the it's the thing that like sort of jumps into her identity and I liken it to the exact same way that Scott's costume, Cyclops costume is among this era, the 90s era. It is the most generic X-Man-y costume of the crew. They The two of them just like, if I'm not an X-Man, what am I even? And I think that for Scott and Kitty, that says something about their personalities. So actually, I agree that it's generic, but I think that's one of the things that I like about her because I think having grown up there for the two of them is just defining to who their characters are. I like your reading of it, Mav, but I think it doesn't work for me as well as it works for you, in part because of that contrast with Cyclops. If Kitty was putting on this costume and becoming the leader of Excalibur, that would read a little bit different to me than her putting on Cyclops's costume and, if anything, during this era, feeling very demoted within the context yes. of the team just because of the people who are writing her. So it, it's it's difficult. I think it would work a little bit better for me within different stories to debut that costume, Which, I guess. Yeah. It works better in later in later x-men books when she's back Mm -hmm. she she does become i mean at one point she's the headmaster of the school so like she does Mm -hmm. become more of a leader later and i agree that her writing is not necessarily the best here but the costume represents that for me anyway matt you you want to add something yeah i I was also going (laughs) to say like i do actually i do actually like that reading um while still disliking the costume um (laughs) and and for me it's a combination of the genericness of the costume and like around this time is when she also just kind of abandons having a code name and it Mm -hmm. bothers me more than it probably should that she doesn't have a code name Jean Grey doesn't have a code name they just go by like those names at all times and something about that just I just find uninteresting so I I, I, I often wonder why any of them use code names (laughs) oh if they if they all did if they all did I'd have no problem with it it's just the like I'm I'm thinking of the X-Men animated series intro where it's like Cyclops, Phoenix, or Cyclops, Storm, and Jean Grey. And it's like, well, (laughs) okay. (laughs) It also has Jubilee, which is also her real name, but you wouldn't know that. (laughs) True. Like Jubilee Jubilee at least sounds like it's a code name, but it's like, no, that's just her name. (laughs) Yeah. I always like the tension of like, 
like who goes by their human name and who doesn't. And I read too much into it and then find that really interesting. Like Kurt always introduces himself as Kurt. And I always <laughs> like that as a little character read. You know, he very rarely would introduce himself as Nightcrawler. Whereas for other people, they're like, no, don't you dare use my human name. Use my mutant name. And I think <laughs> you can I do interesting, interesting things with that. Yeah. Depending. Yeah. Depending on how you're doing it. But usually it's just not really thought about. It's just because we haven't decided about what name we're using for franchising at this point. <laughs> well, the I mean, the X-Men movie does that when he's like, what is your name, boy? No, what is your real name? He's like, I'm Pyro. You know, like, <laughs> like that's like that is a, a thing that can be done. And I which I, I think is I think can be interesting. I think it's um given this is maybe a whole nother show. Ah, maybe it's my my other show, I think, because I don't know that it, we, we could do an episode here for it. But there's a there's a whole question of how does identity work within a world where you are expected to choose your name? And, and this happens with mm -hmm. this happens with the X with X men characters and superheroes in general but also pro wrestlers it happens with drag queens it happens with you know like there's a there's a world where the rebirth into that world is you accepting yourself and it's not exactly the same as say just changing your name or transitioning because then you end up dead naming yourself it's not that it's not like he's given up being kurt wagner or given up being nightcrawler he is both but he has a preference for one name for the name of kurt and or she has a preference for the name of kitty or now kate you know in x so I, I think that there is something there. Yeah, I mean, it is something that I overthink a lot reading X-Men comics. So <laughs> we'll, that we'll do, do an episode of the other show. We'll link to <laughs> we'll, hey. we'll announce when we do it, but I'll, I'll have you on to do on the other show to do it. And we'll talk about all the all the ways in which identity matters with names. Would love to talk about that. All right. Before we close, I actually am going to do a sword strokes letter Woo. this week. We haven't ha done that in one. a while. <laughs> So there is one that I want to laugh at for my own sanity. Okay, so I'm going to highlight a letter from John Beckwith um, uh, responding to a couple issues ago. So, Dear Suzanne, the mini story, A Demon Went to Church on Tuesday, deserves a letter. Much of the media in America today is all into political correctness, feeling good, and generally some of the poorer attributes of liberalism. Nightcrawler's tale, no pun intended, was a masterful example of how an individual's firm dedication to a, dare I say it, old-fashioned and conservative of religion helped him get through his troubles. So there you have it. Kurt <laughs> Wagner, religious conservative icon. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, John is reading the story very similarly to how I read it, but um, clearly had a different affection for that meeting of the story than I did. You can go back to our episode where I complain about that story at length, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I did find this letter interesting in terms of like illustrating the issues I often have with the ways that Nightcrawler's religion is handled, because this is a reading that is a totally valid reading of that story that you can take mm -hmm. away from it, which is that he rejected his mutant identity in favor of a more conservative religious identity and that reading was very present in that story different people will read it differently but that's an available reading that john here is picking up on and he's not wrong but that's why it was a troubling story for me on, under the possibility that like perhaps john is listening to our show which has happened before hi phoenix <laughs> um, but, but rachel but um in the possibility that possibility i will say that amongst the christian conservative readings that i've seen of certain pop culture things in modern times john's letter here is actually kind of nice i mean i don't agree with like the point that he's taken but it's not like he's super attacky about it it's not like he's like oh and i love this reading let's get rid of the queers it's not one of those right <laughs> like, it, it is, <laughs> like he doesn't do that he's like uh you know i i was like all right yeah I, like you said i see how you see that here and he took it as a good thing in a way that you took it as a negative so i think maybe i mean charitable. in the context in the context <laughs> of twitter's demise maybe we're just 
yes. impressed by this letter in terms of like, <laughs> boy, these days it would just be so much more hateful. And I'm like, I mean, I guess uh, that would be where that would be where I was going with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually I'm actually trying to figure out like how he reconciles that reading though with like, oh, and also Kurt regularly hooks up with his sort of stepsister like yeah, well, girlfriend all the time sister, like, come on. <laughs> foster sister yes like that just seems like a weird sort of like yes very religious conservative i think you maybe know. this letter writer is is happy to see the character behaving in a more religious conservative way and hoping that continues rather than mm. what will happen which is kurt continuing to hook up with his foster sister <laughs> <laughs> There's your clothes right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Oh, no. No, no, no. This is terrible. Because you broke Jimmy Barnes' brain? I'm a smoothie. Nothing. Look. Oh. Oh, I'm sure it won't stay that way. <laughs> right? Right. Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Um, uh, we will wrap things up there other than to say Matt thank you so very much for joining us once again always a pleasure to get your insights on our merry mutants before we go let's remind our lovely listeners of where they can find you hard to say these days where we're available <laughs> online but if you want to shout out places you're available online you can go ahead or if there's work or projects you want people to check out or look out for now's the time yeah so I mean I'm on Facebook uh, I'm Matt Curtis on Facebook I'm clinging slightly to Twitter until like more comic studies folks can migrate over <laughs> to the other place that I'm at because I I have built up like the people that I'm following for such a long time that I don't want them all to go away. Um, I'm at a boy called Monk there. I've kind of settled on Hive as like the next destination, which is like a phone like phone based social media thing that looks suspiciously like Twitter slash and Instagram combined. But I'm also at a boy called Monk there, so follow me there because I need more followers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been resisting Hive to date, but we'll see what happens. But uh, but yeah, thank you so much again, Matt. No, thank you for having me. This is always fun. Such a pleasure. Next, the Douglock Chronicles continue again in Excalibur number 80, Out of Time. And guess what? Kurt's in this one. My very official letters of protest about his absence have reached their intended result. I don't know what I wrote there. It's been a long day. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos we've done for many of our earlier episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know you can reach out via our website gosh golly wow where we've got some fun extras and for the time being still via twitter at gosh golly wow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and matt for another successful program thank you matt for helping us gain sentience thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for a truly epic theme song play us out achievement unlocked thank you so much